Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, where we bring you weekly conversations with purpose-driven leaders. Our focus is to share meaningful conversations with purpose-driven people having a big social impact in our community. Our mission is to enable you to listen, connect, and grow. You can learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au. What we're so excited about is um, the ability that social data provides to create an index for the health and well-being of neighbourhoods, um, whether it's livability or resilience, and and those things have been historically so hard to measure. Welcome back to the podcast, and it is great to be back with you as always. Well, those are the wise words of Lucinda Hartley, who is my guest today. Lucinda is the co-founder and CIO of Neighbourlytics. Neighbourlytics is a social data analytics platform for neighbourhoods. I was excited to have Lucinda on the show. She's done so much in a relatively short time, being an outstanding, award-winning social entrepreneur, uh, previously a co-designer, and previously having done a bit of work in government too. So it was awesome to connect, and even more exciting that Lucinda was a listener of the Humans of Purpose podcast, which always makes me uh, grin and leaves me pretty chuffed. Today, I'm excited to welcome a new sponsor to the show. Mountains and Marathons were founded and are run by my good friends, Jamin and Jen, and they offer transformative travel experiences that will enable you to grow, develop high-performance habits and tools, and to improve your leadership skills. They finish with you climbing a mountain or running a marathon at a number of exotic locations around the world. To learn more, just head to mountainsandmarathons.world, and I'll check a link in the show notes for you to explore further. A quick shout-out and thank you, as always, to our wonderful patrons who support the podcast each month, including Joel F., Stuart M, McCartan, and Misha D and his wife. So thanks very much, guys. You help make the show what it is and help us keep on ticking uh, every week. If you too want to support the podcast, and I encourage you to do so, just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. Apologies in advance that in certain sections of the pod, you may get a bit of radio static type of noise. Uh, probably a result of me leaving my phone a bit too close to the action. Just bear with it and uh, push on through Having seen you speak recently, Williamson, I just thought, like, obviously we'd arranged the podcast before that, and it was a nice surprise seeing you speak at Williamson. Yeah, yeah. But it was just like, I'm so happy that we've got this coming up. I've been excited for a while. Yeah, no, it's really great to be here. I love the podcast and the stories that you're sharing. It's even more like putting a smile on my face that you'd heard of the podcast. Yeah. When I reached out, I was like, so I run this little podcast. No one's ever heard of it. And you were like one of, you know, a small percentage of people like, I listened to it already. It was magic. (laughs) (laughs) Made me very happy. So look, you're doing some amazing things with Neighbourlytics and I do want to hear all about it. Yeah. I'd love you to just take me into your life and your journey a little bit, um, where it all started, wherever you feel comfortable until where we sit today. Yeah. I, I think if I think about the things that I'm really passionate about, that I have been passionate about for a long time, it's uh, cities and social change. And and when I reflect on, you know, how did I become really passionate about cities, which might seem like an abstract, strange thing that people often don't think about, uh, I, you know, I, I grew up living in many different places around the world. Um, I lived in uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa and Switzerland and the UK and spent time traveling in the US and uh, I now realize that that's not everyone's upbringing. Um, and those experiences, I think from an early age shaped how I saw the world. And I saw the world as a really big place, as a really diverse place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I guess saw the best and worst of humanity at a young age. And, and that made me passionate about cities and culture. Uh, but it also made me passionate about social action, I guess, having a really visual picture of what inequality looked like mm. from a really early age, uh, was something that has always stayed with me and it's really uh, informed how I see the world. Uh, so I, I studied urban design after a sort of detour into science, you know, that, that's another story for another podcast perhaps, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I studied urban design because I was really passionate about creating places for people, but I found that the reality of urban design, at least, you know, in my graduate jobs was designing uh, concrete detailing. Um, wow, that's kind of depressing. Yeah. Next time you go to the MCG, take a look at the um, joins between the concrete. That's that's my work. Um, it's still there, which is a, which is a good sign. Um, and look, someone needs to care about the detail. I'm not saying that design detail isn't important, but 
you know, I was really big picture and passionate about creating places for people. And I found that experience a little bit soul destroying. Um, but the MCG is a very important spiritual place to many. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. Way, you know. It would have been someone's dream job, perhaps, <laughs> just wasted on me. Um, so, yeah, the next chapter of my life, I guess, was was leaving that and I um, moved to Southeast Asia um, and worked with a range of organisations but ended up working with UN Habitat uh, on slum resettlement and upgrading projects. And, and for me, that was, uh, a window into a whole different side of design that I'd never experienced or been mm-hmm. trained in, in Australia, but something that I was really passionate to learn more about. And I think what I took mostly away from that experience was how, how the, how the power of community really changes the way that you design things. Like mm-hmm. if you really take time to, to listen and review and reflect, then you end up with with such different outcomes and and seeing uh, the ability to create projects with very small budgets um, and and just the the things that I learned from different community leaders in that time um, again made me really passionate about social action. Mm. I, I remember one particular project um, uh, working with some community leaders in a slum called Ruriye, uh, which actually, sadly, I'm not sure is there right now, mm-hmm. uh, in Phnom Penh. And, uh, you know, the the funding for the project was for an education project. Um, and we were looking at ways of building schools and other infrastructure. I remember this community leader called Sopiak pulled me aside and he's like, you know, listen, to, we don't need a school. He's like, the problem's the flooding you know, you could see like in the rainy season that people just couldn't walk and move around this this neighbourhood and uh, we ended up, uh, you know, through working with him and, and other community leaders uh, diverting the funding for a school and building footpaths instead and and that was something that could be built with local labour, mm. it could it was much cheaper, it was much easier and um, that really made me think differently about the role of design in community development uh, initially. Uh, and so after that experience and coming back to Australia, I, I guess I uh, was struck by a whole new set of urban challenges mm. that I, I think we face here. And uh, perhaps it's less uh, of of the rapid um, urban informality that you find in, in many kind of like mega cities in Southeast Asia, for example, but um, but the the isolation, the disconnection, the the way that people don't know their neighbours and and the the challenges of, of well-being, that, you know, that we're actually creating cities that, you know, at, at the worst kill people, yeah. you know. People are dying of loneliness and isolation and uh, and sometimes I think, like, honestly, like, is this the best we can do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so I guess the next chapter of my life is I spent a long time as a, as a co-founder of Co-Design Studio, placemaking organisation, um, that uh, is really championing innovation in in um, urban development uh, through placemaking, but also a range of other tools helping the property sector, governments, uh, and communities. You know, plan more effectively, more effectively, but also deliver projects that deliver better outcomes for people. And um, you know, we delivered hundreds of projects from pop up parks to you know community centres to and, consulting and for, projects. For the uninformed, when you say placemaking, is that like? A precinct or creating sort of a social space? Or? Yeah, I think uh, placemaking is a is a term that's actually completely undefined, <laughs> and uh, even the champions of placemaking, uh, like Project for Public Spaces, uh, don't have a, a really clear definition. But but the way that um, co design looks at it is how you can create better places for more prosperous lives. Yeah, that how your process of designing a neighbourhood. Um, isn't just about designing the physical space, but it's also taking care to design the, the social environment so that people are more connected and healthy and happier at the end of the day as well, um, which requires some intentionality. That's interesting. So you, yeah. it seems like a fair bit of your focus is looking at the connection between health and cities, which is probably you know, previously a bit understudied or you know, you've got to look closely to sort of see that. Yeah, I think there is... Uh, there, there has always been and continues to be good public health research on neighbourhoods, but it's uh, unfortunately a long way from practice Mm. in a lot of cases, but that's increasingly coming to the fore. Uh, And I think now, now there's a really proven, you know, commercial incentive that neighborhoods that are more walkable, more livable Mm. are also uh, draw better returns, have Mm. better tenants, have higher sales, all those things. So uh, the sector is uh, really starting to understand those links, which is a really positive thing. 
but I guess the the next chapter for me and and what I'm currently working on as co-founder at Nabletics is uh, how we measure cities and particularly how we measure the social performance of cities. And and what I, I, I found through the various chapters of the things that I've done, uh, you know, whether it's large scales consulting or working with the United Nations or, or running a social enterprise here uh, in Australia is that uh, we don't have adequate ways of measuring what matters for yeah. cities. Yep. Like cities have really good mechanisms for measuring how fast traffic is going. They know how many buildings are going up. Uh, we've got increasingly better at measuring things like air quality and electricity usage and things. But when it comes to what actually makes people happy, healthy and connected, we're often left guessing mm. about what makes neighbourhoods great. And on the one hand, that's a wellbeing question. On the other hand, it's um, just a basic economics question about, yeah. you know, neighbourhoods that don't have those things don't don't thrive as well economically either. And so my, with my co-founder, Jessica, we created Neighbourlytics as a tool to to measure how well neighbourhoods are thriving uh, and we've been growing incredibly fast over the last 18 months. So that's been a wild ride. It's extremely exciting to follow the journey. Um, and there's a round of investment recently that closed. Yeah, yeah. We, we just closed an oversubscribed investment round, which was a massive feat. Uh, I also found out, um, last week that last year in Australia, only 2.2% of venture funding went to female led businesses which I can believe, having yeah. been through it recently, yep. I can believe that's true. Um, but now that we're <laughs> on the other side of it, maybe push that percentage up to 3% for does last that, does year. That if you're in a room full of, you know, potential fundees or those who invest, it's like 98% men or, or yeah. you say the successful ones, it's only 2% women out of that. Yeah, of the successful ventures yeah. funded, uh, only 2.2%. Oh, wow. Oh, well, 2.2% of the funding pool. That's actually that's really actually hard given. to conceptualise. Like yeah. I mean, there are so many, you know, um, great women in the startup and investing yeah. space that it's sort of hard to – you know, to even envisage that figure. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But you're part of the She Starts program we as well? We were, yep. yeah. So we we were the first intake of the She Starts program with Blue Chili in 2017, which was a, uh, very much the catalyst for us yep. in, in starting that journey. Uh, while Jessica and I had thought for, for many years, decades even, about measurement of cities, uh, that opportunity was really the catalyst to say, let's do this, you know, let's – um, let's start something. And are you yeah. guys an all-female team? We are, actually. <laughs> it, that hasn't been necessarily by design, but we but we are. <laughs> no, no, I was, just, I was curious because I saw that you, you got the dog on the page as well. Yeah, the dog. Is it a boy dog? Or it's a, a boy dog, dog. Okay, yeah. So, that's so right. Tyson of, is male. There's a bit of diversity in uh, animals as well, yeah, which is good. Yeah, and our bookkeeper is, is male as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw that the, even the dog on the staff page has an email address, which yeah. is about dogs can't read, you which can, I thought was really funny. <laughs> you can email him. <laughs> he may or may not respond. <laughs> and by he... You mean you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Someone in the team. That's yeah. awesome. So I guess for me, when I thought about Ableytics, I thought this is so clever because it's really using social tools and platforms mm. to try and look at the human heartbeat of cities or yeah. sort of look at those social stories that are popping up around urban areas. I always think about, like for me, and you used this example in the Money Now video that you did recently about going to the park and peak mm. park times. Yes. And obviously, you know, I don't have kids or anything like, like that yet, so I'm that creepy old guy who's at the park just <laughs> running with the dog. But <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I do notice there are certain times in which the, the park is packed. And if you're a person who is lonely or wanted to, you know, have mm. better social bonds, wouldn't it just be great to know what are the peak park times? Peak park times, yeah, yeah peak yeah. park. Yeah, and even what's going on, I, I think what we've – one of the things that we've been most surprised by with Neighbourlytics, uh, and it's a social analytics platform for neighbourhoods, for those those listening, and we, we use social social big data uh, to map and measure the social and cultural life of places. Be Facebook, Twitter. Yeah, Google, Google, Google yep. Maps, Instagram, Zomato, TripAdvisor, various layers uh, of a neighbourhood's social life is that you think you know a place because you live there. Mm. But just like you have a filter bubble when you search things online, you, you kind of have a filter bubble for your neighbourhood as well. And, oh, you, and sure. you see the things that are your experience but not necessarily other people's experience. And, yep. and it's really highlighted to us the diversity of things that are going on right under our noses that we didn't know about. Mm. And that's been really exciting. Or, or that you just didn't visit at that time of day. Like, you know, you might not be aware of the peak uh, children's happy hour or whatever it is going on in the park if you're there to walk your dog. But. <laughs> 
but you know maybe if you've done kinder pickup then that's a different time so the sort of even just different demographics in the same area would use places differently which anecdotally I think we all know but um, putting data behind that's been really interesting yeah it seems, it seems like a great project so is it kind of like um, you know because we walk around a neighborhood and we just see what we see but yeah. we, and we, we get opinions and recommendations for other people but what you're doing is almost building a, a platform where you can look at a crowdsource or aggregated information about sort of what's around and yeah, what, that's where right. the busiest things are happening. Yeah, so we can see the different places that are happen, the different places that exist, and that's everything like the cafe and the park that you don't see and that you do see, and then the things like the soccer club that meets on Tuesday afternoons, or the book club, or the parents group, etc. That you maybe you don't see, or um, why neighbourhoods are different in summer and winter, or Wednesday and a Saturday, mm. because the real time nature of the data allows you to see sort of time series changes, which is really interesting, uh, and then also how people talk about their neighbourhood is very reflective of their emotional connection to that place and that has a, a whole other layer of understanding values and aspirations mm. uh, for a place. So who yeah. is this information um, going to be most used or useful to? Currently we work predominantly with the property sector in trying to, you know, everyone's talking about data, everyone's talking about social sustainability or livability and we're able to put metrics behind that. Uh, so we help the property sector either understand the feasibility of what should happen in new neighbourhoods and what would improve its performance. Um, we also look at measuring outcomes such as understanding how livable neighbourhoods mm, are or mm. aren't. Uh, we work with governments on measuring um, proxies for wellbeing and social connection or understanding how to allocate budgets for services. And we work with like leasing agents and asset managers, particularly in the retail space, to understand the experience economy and what makes some um, places work and others don't and how they might curate better tenancies based on understanding what's really happening mm. in a neighbourhood. It's a fascinating mix. So when you say government, are you working with both local and state? Yeah. Oh, yeah. so you're getting really like that, you know, local resilience and wellbeing stuff. Yes. And then maybe state is more about other services reaching the right place a little bit. Yeah. So we did an interesting project with the Queensland government last year, which was they wanted to evaluate how they were spending funding with neighbourhood centres and the, you know, correlations to the neighbourhood improvement. Uh, so I guess at the core of their question, it was around budget allocation, mm. but to understand how the budget allocation worked, it was a question around better understanding uh, vulnerability mm. of neighbourhoods and also better understanding strengths and assets. And that's something that had never been visible to them before. If you look at just the CIFR index or, or kind yep. of demographic data, you get a very rudimentary picture of, of you know, socioeconomic factors. But in fact, our lives are so much more complex than exactly where we live and how much we earn. And so by understanding lifestyle behaviours, um, patterns of movement, um, where people spend time and, and what they value and talk about you know we're able to highlight new strengths mm. and or, or or um view different influences and advocates in neighborhoods that were really driving change that it could be new partners and and so the question became much more complex than just a funding question but more about how do we leverage strengths and assets in a neighborhood to drive real change in a new way that's fascinating. So if, if we think a little bit like um, obviously at population level, you can do a whole bunch of surveys over time mm. to figure out, you know, um, how people are feeling, what's their well-being like, what's their household stress mm -hmm. like and all these sorts of things. Yep. Is doing the social mapping also a bit more about the why? Like because yeah. you know, when people do these rich sort of social posts, oh, hey, love this place, just went to today, hey, feeling lonely and depressed and, you know, <laughs> is aggregating all of that stuff kind of a bit more you know, the why behind the numbers? Yeah. So I think like with, you know, indices of social well-being and other social well-being surveys, for example, I mean, they've been undertaken over many years and, and there's a lot of strength in that longitudinal data. Um, but I guess the difference that with what we would pick up is there's a, there's a really big difference between what you would say and what you actually do. For sure. So if someone asked me, you know, are you satisfied with your life? Mm. Or those are some of the questions in subjective well-being, you know, um, are you satisfied with your level of personal fitness or um, personal health? I think they ask, um, you know, today, um, <laughs> today, pretty yeah, good. Yeah. Maybe tomorrow, yeah. not so much. And also I would tend to give you an aspirational view, like particularly 
you know, and I, I just reflect on one survey, like, and I think this was Western Sydney, the subjective well-being indicators, you know, 95% of people said that they were satisfied with their level of physical health. But, oh, in, but in that same place, like <laughs> yeah. 78% of people rate. were obese. Yeah, so yeah, I'm like, yeah. well, is that you know, really consistent. And so what we look at is indicators of behavior because Mm. what you do and what you say and often not the same. So we're able to look at proxies for what people do Mm. based on where they spend their time, particularly like location information. And and when I say that, we look at the place data, not the personal data. So we're looking at how busy the cafe is and what's happening in the park, not not where any one individual is Mm. uh, in, in that way. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's quite a different data set, but one that actually feels out, uh, in, in our view, a more true response of what's what's actually happening uh, in terms of the health and well-being of a place. It's really well said. I, I liked how you sort of explained the aspirational versus actual because yeah. uh, sub- subjective is very murky. There's a there's a um, a famous uh, l- little experiment that I think was done here in the states where they asked people, um, you know. In a room, how many of you think you're an above average driver? And it was like yeah. 80% of the room. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, you know, it's like <laughs> everyone thinks that they're going great or like you're really, when it's a subjective question, you're saying a mix of what the actual is, what the aspirational is, and I think what you expect others expect you to say. Yes. And it's sort of – What others want you to hear. Yeah. yeah. Like how often do you go to the gym? Well, like <laughs> in an ideal week, yeah. that's what I would fill in. It's same, like as, same as like food, food reporting and diets. Yeah, like yeah. Food diaries are notoriously um, – you know, if you ask someone to recall at the end of the day what they ate that day, oh, no, I didn't go in the kitchen and have those wasabi peas and chocolate. No, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. That didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we remember very selectively. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there are a whole range of new interesting studies coming out, um, psychological studies and sort of well-being studies in the US where what they do is they um, they ask you in certain time intervals how you're feeling and just to rate it. So you'll, mm. you'll get an SMS and just be asked to respond to one, two or you know, three yeah, scale. Yeah, yeah. So sort of getting to that point where it can be a bit more like a bit more um, real time. Yeah, a bit more mm. real time and maybe less biased by thinking yes. less about how you respond. Yeah, yeah. But what you made you made a great point because you're saying that the unprompted nature of just social posting you're doing, because behavioural, it's not compromised like, you know, a planned Answer? Yes. Like just to give an example of like how what the sort of data that we get about public spaces, for example, uh, like people don't post ratings and reviews of parks really like, oh, I love this park or, you know, post a photo of I hate this play equipment or I wish someone would fix this. I mean, occasionally, but but not very often. What people do do is they, they take a photo of themselves and their friends enjoying a picnic. They take a photo of their kid on the slide. They take a photo of the the trees in the rain you know they 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 take photos and post about these key sort of moments mm. in the day that are important to them yep. and when you times that by population level like hundreds of thousands of posts then you start to see trends in behavior uh, which is really, really interesting. It's like a judge me by what I do, not by what I say. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. So when you talk about photos, um, do you use the metadata or location stuff? Yeah, so we do look at like Instagram and Twitter and other TripAdvisor and other um, posts. We we only look at the publicly available information yep. in that way. So it's not picking up everything, but we are looking at population scale. So a lot of that noise is, is averaged out with mm. the sound. Sample, of, sample size of the data. And so I guess that gives a bit of an insight, you know, when my next question is going to be about, you know, like because you're looking at quite rich and interesting data mm. about how people feel about different places, the obvious question is, well, how micro can you go? Mm. Can, can you figure out what Mike Davis enjoyed uh, last, <laughs> last week on Tuesday or it stays a bit more pop level? Yeah, no, it's population level data. So we, we look at what's considered hyperlocal in that it's it's we look at a one kilometer radius which is a lot more detailed than um a lot of data sets would go so it's lower than postcode it's it's very much neighborhood experience and the reason that we look at one kilometer is that's you know that's a rough kind of walking distance catchment that's what people would describe as their neighborhood in kind of a mental map picture uh of a neighborhood and so what we see at that scale is, yeah, looking at what, what all the businesses are doing, what all the community facilities are doing and how people post. So we, there's, there's no way that we can re-identify the data. It's actually aggregated for us at source. Uh, so we, we look at sort of blocks, units of, of things that are happening That's in awesome. a place. Yeah. 
So we're more interested in the herd behavior, yeah. I guess, of a neighborhood. Yeah. And that's actually when you're trying to understand livability or the feasibility for a property development or budget allocation from a government perspective, the herd behavior is actually what you really want when yeah. you when you drill down and try and understand like personas and like, you know, mm. where are the 35-year-old people who like cycling? Like that's actually the wrong question to be mm. asking of a neighborhood. What we want to know is like, you know, are people cycling and where and um, do they enjoy it? Th- those are much more useful things to understand than the actual sort of demographics. Yeah, On that, that cycling thing, you know, like because we just talked about only a few of the apps you might use that are plugged to the back end. Yeah. Uh, are you thinking about like, you know, will we add Strava in or? Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, we have a long list of data sets that we want to add and Strava is one of them. Yes, yeah, St- Strava is uh, at the moment n- not not accessible for private companies, but we are looking at <laughs> looking at ways that we could partner with them on an aggregate level because there's some really interesting things from the Strava heat map and I'm not other data. I'm not a cyclist, yeah. but I have some friends that are mad on it, and they all they do is talk about Strava. Yeah, so I just assume that it's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, for, yeah, Strava, know. Garmin, other kind of yep. um, wearables. Uh, certainly like Uber Eats information and using that to understand food deserts yeah, that and that kind of thing. So there's all that, all those layers that um, now that we've closed our capital raise, <laughs> we can put time and energy yeah. into how building exciting. even more robust uh, data sets. Yeah. So how, do, how does this kind of work influence how you think about um, social life? And, you know, I, I feel like we increasingly live a sort of two-sided world. Mm. There's the physical uh, life we live and then there's yep. our online life. Yep. How do you cope given that essentially this platform is very much about, you know, you want people to keep posting, you want the social heartbeat to, you know, yep. guide, um, you know, the, the, the assumptions you're making, the, the conclusions you're making about activity. In your own life and sort of your feelings, how does it all um, play out for you? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's different arguments there, there about – uh, screens and their impact on us. I guess what we have found is that there's a good correlation, like when there is more opportunity to connect face to face through the digital realm. So such as when there is more events on yep. and activities on that are posted online, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there is actually more opportunity to connect face to face. So, um, so what, tech that facilitates face-to-face connection, very valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And those are the kind of metrics that we can track, like what is the correlation between people's sense of social connection and how many events there are going on in a neighbourhood at any one time. Now, obviously, there's lots of events that aren't online, but they, they correlate very strongly. Mm. Like busier neighbourhoods with more online activity have more offline and online events than those which have, have lower uh, numbers of that. I mean, my view is that in some ways, and, and this is one of the things that I was sharing at the Williamson lecture, which which may seem controversial, but I feel that we need to engage more with technology mm. in many ways rather mm. than less. And I'm not saying that we should be on our screens all day. I don't think that at all. But I think that there is often a, a sense that, uh, you know, technologies you know, because it could have many nefarious uses that we will sort of stick away from the big questions. But in fact, that we we need more than ever people who are socially minded, people who are passionate about good in the world to be really engaged and informed in these conversations. Uh, And that's how we're going to be able to use all of this opportunity around data for social good. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it, yeah, it, there is a very real risk that it could be used for for other other negative uh, um, purposes as well. Um, but I don't necessarily think that the creation of data footprints means that we have to be on our screens all the time. So you, yeah. you, your argument might be that you're not actually encouraging more people to be on the screen uh, or use their screens more. You're just tracking what people are actually doing. Yeah, that's right. Like if, if you turn on your Google Maps, as I did to come here tonight, you know, there is that period of time when my data was being collected, you know, even if I turn it off now. Yeah. So all of those kinds of contributions, uh, you know, every every day we are contributing to that data footprint of a neighbourhood uh, in a very aggregated way. And those kinds of tools, it's now hard to live Imagine living it's, without. It's really hard. I mean, it, <laughs> you hear these every now and then. There's a medium blog that goes up about someone who uh, detox from Apple, Google, Facebook, and yeah. the big five for like a, a, you know, a month and here's what happened. Yes. And uh, they're all just but they can, I'll save you the time reading them. They're yes. all like, um, it was awful and now I'm back on all of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or like monitoring them to some degree. But there, there is that sort of implicit thing that, you know, if you want – to have an opt- a tech optimized life, you you have to give something up. It's not like th- these are companies; they're not yeah. charities. Yeah, um, yeah. 
So for me, I think the best example is, you know, I have the Pixel, the Google phone, uh, yep. and I absolutely love it because it makes my life a lot easier. And I know that Google has almost this perfect avatar of me, so yeah. they, they, can, they can market stuff to me incredibly well and right. do, and I, I buy it. Yeah, yeah. But that's the – I become a marketing puppet for them. Yes. Um, but it optimizes my life and my well-being through that as long as I don't overuse it. Yeah, I mean, those are the, these are the kinds of – whether or not that should be the case are the big questions yeah. that I feel that we should be asking. Uh, and, and while I see enormous opportunity with data, um, you know, population level data, um, I also think that it shouldn't be, you know, for example, a lot of apps now you can pay to be more anonymous or you mm. can pay to have less advertising. But then I think, you know, are we creating this huge inequality where like being anonymous is a privilege? Uh, and if you can't afford to pay for those things, mm. then you're going to give away more of your data. Yeah. And these are the questions that, that absolutely we should be asking yeah. and, um, and, and really looking at, at what is an equitable solution yeah. in that regard um, and what are we comfortable with in terms of um, data being given away? You know, where's the level of consent that's is that happening like in that? Is like a sort of a contract or, you know, is it is it Facebook saying, here is what we have, uh, here's what we do for you in exchange, are you happy with these terms and everyone has to opt in or opt out? Maybe? Yeah. You know, we've had the opportunity recently to work with Sidewalk Labs, which is an alphabet company on one of their working groups for data transparency. Uh, and that's a whole nother podcast there on, on Sidewalk Labs. It's quite a controversial project for if, if people aren't aware of that alphabet. So, you know, Google company is building a piece of city in Toronto as like an experimental smart city, uh, which, you know, in and of itself brings a huge amount of research funding and R&D opportunity. But I think the questions that are being asked is, um, you know, for the first time we have a, a private company building a sort of end-to-end piece of city, including the transportation and the Wi-Fi networks and the public spaces and everything. So mm-hmm. not just sort of a building or a campus, but sort of a city block yeah. as an experiment. Um, and, yeah, some of the questions that have been coming up through um, that process uh, are around, like, what does consent of data look like with sensor networks, mm-hmm. for example? Yep. So, and, and that's a much more personal view of, you know, if you, if a set, if sensor beacon is sort of tracking down to an individual level, it's a much more invasive use of data than looking at population level oh, yeah. and, and where should the boundaries be on who collects that? What can, what rights do you have to consent to that? And, um, yeah, they, these are the it's important big world. questions Seriously. that, um, need to be understood and, and wrestled with. It's yeah. a brave new world out there. Tell me, you've seen so many amazing cities in your time, probably even before you started co-design and Nabalytics. Are there cities for you now that sort of stand out as, you know, beacons of good social connectivity and health? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the cities that I really love are perhaps not the ones that uh, are typical in a way. I'm not sure. But I, I love Nairobi. I, I feel like Nairobi is doing really extraordinary uh, things in, in many ways. It's obviously it's changing very fast at the moment. Um, but, you know, I was there recently just last year and um, – I think what you see seeing there is a is a community that's incredibly mobile, incredibly technology forward. Uh, it's basically a cashless society, um, and yeah, there. But there are still you know very vibrant, active public spaces and streets. Um, you know, there's lots of challenges there as well. I think safety in public space remains a really big challenge. Mm. I think um, moderating equitable development remains a really big challenge. Uh, but it's one of those places that the the colour and life is just so present wherever you go, and 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 I really really enjoy that. Uh, yeah, I think progressively, uh, you know, Copenhagen is one of those cities that is always held up as being like amazing. And uh, yeah, when I visited, I visited there for the first time last year. So I've managed to, to go this long without visiting there. And I can see, I think more having studied its transformation was what impressed me. So yeah, it's a great city. I'm sure many people have been there. But I think what's more impressive is that in, in 20 or 30 years, it's really transformed its public spaces and streets and active life, uh, largely by prioritising people in public spaces and reducing the need for cars. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
and so that's, that's the direction that Australia is trying to take in yeah. some areas, but it gets heavily contested here. Yeah, do you think that's <laughs> sort of what's happening in Melbourne a little bit, or that we'd like to see that happening? There in is Melbourne? a there is a strong kind of policy push to uh, have that happen in Melbourne. That's what I think would be fundamentally great for Melbourne. I mean, if you imagine like you know, working, walking along Little Burke Street the other day at Chinatown, you think, why, why do we even have cars down here? Yeah, like that's pretty weird. There's thousands of people uh, trying to walk down here and then the occasional car trying to push through and it just feels like, well, why have them at all? Um, I think there's really, you know, strong connections between walkability and health and uh, it would be great to have more of that. It's a very contentious topic in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Can get even more contentious when you're out on the roads, and you know you see the car and cyclists start speaking to each yeah. other. It can't be good always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you're one of the things you're working towards is to have these big um, indices or you know yep. data sets and live almost like a livability index yep. for precincts or cities. Is yep. that right? Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah, neighborhoods. You, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit about that and sort of how that would sort of like look against um, currently what's out there, and you know how how what you're doing would add to that kind of collective knowledge. Yeah. What we're so excited about is um, the ability that social data provides to create an index for the health and well-being of neighbourhoods, um, whether it's livability or resilience, and and those things have been historically so hard to measure. Like you know, if we look at um, like the Economist has a livability index, for example, mm. which you know has has a lot of kind of crude metrics around how many they used to measure how many payphones there are, but I think oh, there's yeah. like more sophisticated metrics now um, than that. But they they all tend to measure the physical um, spaces as a proxy for how great they are, mm. uh, but not the things that really matter. And so now we've got this uh, data set, and what Nabalytics is really excited about is that. Um, you know, over the past 18 months, we've now amassed data sets for hundreds of neighbourhoods across Australia and projects in nine countries as well. And this gives us the opportunity to actually create a scale of of how well neighbourhoods are thriving right across the country. And that's an incredible opportunity uh, to essentially create an open standard or a data standard uh, for how we measure the health and wellbeing of neighbourhoods. And I, I guess the, the reason that that's so important is that you know, in looking at, at preparing this study, we found that there are like over 90 different ways that people are measuring social sustainability of neighbourhoods across the country. And like while that's okay in one level, like there's many different companies who want to have their own measurement tool and that's great, but no one is singing from the same song sheet because they're all collecting data completely differently, yeah. which means it's really hard to compare how things are going. Absolutely. So by creating this scale like a ruler, if you like, because this hasn't been measured before, um, we've got this real opportunity to drive change at the local level, but also in terms of policy and budget allocations, because we can actually get a different picture of neighborhood well-being. And what are, you, what are the sort of, I'm sure it's very complicated and you can't go through all of them, but do you want to, can you talk about some of the um, things that you're going to be looking at? Yeah, so there's four, there's four, five actually yep. um, key domains that we've found are, are really consistent in the social research, but also really measurable with um, social big data. So the things that make neighborhoods tick, if you like. So one is its local economy, like the ability to have local jobs and a thriving local community um, rests very heavily on its economic performance um, and it's the diversity of economic opportunity. So economy is one. The second is um, assets, community assets. So do you have access to everything that you need to support your physical and mental health within walking distance, which is a a metric that's, you know, used in Victorian and and New South Wales policy uh, around 20-minute neighbourhoods or 30-minute neighbourhoods. Um, so what are the, what are the physical assets that are there, but we know the physical assets aren't enough. Um, so then looking at proxies for social connection and participation, and then looking at other, um, other proxies for voice and influence. So how much are people involved in their neighborhood? And the fifth is looking at flexibility or change over time. Um, because we know that neighborhoods are dynamic. So the first four economy, community, participation and voice and influence, uh, are the kind of four key domains. But then we're also looking at how time series data can help us measure change over time because we know that neighborhoods are constantly evolving and they should always be evolving. Mm -hmm. And that's always something that we sometimes forget about when we plan neighborhoods and we, finish them and we think that the 
you know, the best day is the first day it opens, but in fact, that's the first day of a neighborhood. That's not the last day. That's so true. Very, yeah. very fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, at one point, Dream Williamson, you got a great question that I thought you really nailed the answer to, and that was around, um, aren't you sort of be concerned that creating a digital platform like this, you're going to exclude uh, both old people yeah. and the homeless? Yeah. And I thought you I mean, I... I don't know where my head was at, but I didn't see your answer coming, which I thought was brilliant. Do you want to just sort of share a bit about why that's not a problem? <laughs> yeah, well, it, yeah. All right, I, I can't remember what I said that day, but you know, um, there there is a sort of common misperception that digital data is only created by a kind of a, a portion of the community, but that's in fact not true. Like eighty percent of homeless people have smartphones. People from you know cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds use smartphones just as much as the rest of the population. Um, people will tend to these days prioritize a phone over other expenses. So our data is actually agnostic of income level. We take the lat long data points, not the language recognition. Mm-hmm. So we're also language agnostic. So we mm-hmm. pick up, in fact, often data points that are missed in other surveys because we're picking them up in multiple languages. Um, in terms of older, you know, there are certain groups that are are not directly represented. For example, children, uh, we would hope, are not contributing to data footprints through their Facebook accounts, yep. for example. And yep. similarly, um, even though over 65s is one of the largest growth area use in social media, um, you know, there are very, very elderly people or, you know, people who have illnesses of various kinds who would not be participating. Yep. But even in that context, there are proxies that we can use to understand how age-friendly or how child-friendly a neighbourhood is. So mm-hmm. you would assume that a neighbourhood that has a lot of children's activities, a lot of children's services, um, a lot of children's programs is more child-friendly, similarly with aged care, that we can look at um, proxies like that. So, yeah, and interestingly, even in the um, – so there's, there's, a, there's a really wide representation of data across uh, populations and what we've seen now that we're, you know, doing projects in a lot of different countries is that's consistent there too. In fact, the most data that we ever collected for any project we've done so far was in Nairobi. Wow. Has three times the data footprint of Chinatown and Singapore. Wow, what's the population there? Uh, the population is two to three million. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just in a completely mobile economy where people would be actually more likely to be on Facebook, Twitter, and have Facebook business accounts and things than they would separate web pages. Can I ask you to comment um, just randomly on Singapore and how you think that's sort of placed as a city? Because mm. I think that's an interesting one. We went yeah. there recently, my wife and I were on holidays, and we just thought it was an excellent traveler's experience. It does seem very like gentrified, upper middle yep. class, a lot of wealth, a lot of, you know, private property, but they do some interesting things there. Like all the, all the properties government lease, it, it stays with the government. Yes. So you lease yeah. it. Yeah. 80% actually, of housing yeah. is government owned, which yeah. is like just an extraordinary thing to it's think about crazy. for Australia. But the city, it's so clean and easy to get around. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of smart censoring going on. And I think a lot of probably, you know, weird dodgy data surveillance, but, <laughs> but it does make for a very seamless experience. Yeah. Yeah. So from the humidity, if you can get yes. past that. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of Singapore as a sort of a model? Yeah. Well, I know that, yeah, certainly they have, um, and it's probably a similar trajectory to many cities around the world, that they're focused very strongly on improving their efficiency and their physical environment. But like many cities, they now have the crisis of social isolation mm-hmm. that, that a lot of cities face. And the government is actively looking at studies on friendliness and social mm-hmm. connection and placemaking to try and work out how they can actually help people get to know each other in local neighborhoods um, and various things. Uh, But one of the interesting studies that we did in Singapore was comparing Marina Bay Sands, so like, you know, Gardens by the Bay and the new kind of blockbuster exhibition center and everything um, with Chinatown. And, you know, Chinatown's obviously a very old heritage, kind of fine grain, gritty, um, you know. Yeah, but bustling. And you'd know that to visit there that every meter you're stopping to look at something as opposed to Marina Bay Sands, it has the big events and the big shows. And um, so naturally uh, Chinatown had a a much larger digital footprint because there's a lot more going on there. But the question the customer was asking at this is like they actually wanted Marina Bay Sands to have much more of a vibrant, active feel. it is weird, Marina Bay Sands. Like we we were in both. Yeah. When we were in Marina Bay Sands, it's like the kind of place where you feel like uh, you may not talk to anyone else the whole time you're there. Yeah. And that might be nice if you're on holidays and you're just with your partner, but it's kind of, it is very cold and, you know, it does feel very isolated. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I think there's a genuine intention to have more of the kind of grit and personality and life that you get from Chinatown. And we were looking at the data metrics to try and understand like, 
you know, you know that they're different when you visit there, but what are the actual data dimensions that show why they're different? To yep. give you some direction on what you might do to to change that. Yep. And obviously Marina Bay Sands, well, it's designed to be, um, you know, a big international icon. It's it's always going to be that, but there is there would be a lot of strategies to look at for increasing its fine grain activity as well. Have you read um, Lost Connections by Johan Hari? Oh, no. Sounds like I need to. I think it would yeah. be great because he talks about, um, you know, the, the social isolation crisis mm. um, from his experience both in the, the States and the UK. And he actually says something quite interesting. He says uh, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's connection. Right. Yeah. Uh, which I think is an interesting yeah, quote. Yeah. And he really talks about how we, what what's really happening, you know, in cities and all around the world is just – Digital has made us move um, in a lot of times away from that, and, and governments have not done enough, and you know, business yeah. and whatnot to move people closer to just talking to each other and having those community yes. connections. Yes. So I can't help but think that Napolitics can be a big part of you know helping to you know move help people um, find that community connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly helping city makers know where and where not it's happening and how to foster different approaches. Yeah. So that, is that what an ideal sort of city would look for you, look to you in the future or like a, a, a well-made place might have like a really good kind of, um, you know, you'd have the social heart, but also people would know how to connect with their interests and sort of activity and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what an ideal place would look like, but I think sometimes we get caught up trying to design what the ideal place is. And I certainly see that a lot in the planning professions. It's like, well, if we just design exactly the right kind of shops and exactly the right kind of footpaths and buildings and everything will be wonderful. But the reality that it isn't because people are messy and complicated and they're human and they're (laughs) flawed and then they don't behave exactly how you wanted them to and, and various things like that. So I think, you know, my advice would be how do we create the best enabling environment to allow people to do that themselves, which means they need a lot of control. So one of the reasons in our index we're looking at measuring things like voice and influence and participation Mm. is, is to actually understand like what level of influence does that community have um, in determining their own future? Like, are they allowed to like, you know, plant vegetables in their nature strip or are they going to get a permit to arrest (laughs) them for that? You know, there's all those kinds of small scale kind of opportunities to connect that we can enable. And that should be our role is to enable that. Yeah. So are you reading anything at the moment and how do you kind of learn what's your, what's your default <laughs> mode of like growth? Yeah, I learn through podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not a reader if I can say that. Like if I read two books in a year, that's like it's a totally good year. totally okay to say that. I came across Blinkist recently, the 15-minute book summaries. Yeah, it's like changed it? my life. Yeah. yeah, I can deal with books if they're only 15-minute audio summaries. Can you, reta- can you retain it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Neither can I. <laughs> That's true. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I, I can't. That I is its one failing. Book. I can't remember yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, it's really, really good. Um, it's good for the 15 minutes, but afterwards it's just gone. It yeah. <laughs> but at the moment, what I'm really quite obsessed with actually is learning from other founders, um, finding that, um, you know, Neighbourlytics, it's a, it's a data analytics company. Uh, we're growing extremely fast and that's an extremely exciting proposition, but it also requires a different type of leader than one I've been before. And um, have, so I'm really listening a lot to Gimlet's um, uh, podcasts on, on startups, yeah, the <laughs> like the pitch. Yeah. The and pitch. how I built this yep. as well as another one. Um, just listening to different founder stories of, um, their highs and lows and, and, um, successes and failures and, and what they've learned from that. So, uh, those, that's how I'm learning and what I'm really focused on at the moment. Um, I consume a lot of information and research about cities yep. every day. Yep. Um, but you know, my kind of personal growth is much more thinking about like how are we building this next level data analytics company. Awesome. And mm. how do you sustain? Because obviously you're really busy and it's a high pressure environment. Yeah. How do you stay, you know, on your top game and, you know, <laughs> Oh, if you have an answer for that, I, <laughs> yeah, I am trying this year to, um, to have better boundaries about when I work. Um, it's, 
yeah, which is sort of varying degrees of success. But I'm trying to get up really, really early and then not work in the evenings. Awesome. What what time are we talking? Uh, four. Are oh, you you're part of the four a.m. Yeah, club? And the That's 4 even before club. the five a.m. club. Yeah, it's crazy. It's great. It's really underutilized time good? of day. I recommend it. Do you like it because <laughs> it's completely quiet and there's no interruption? Yeah, I like that. I can think then. Look, I'm I'm not always super awake. Then so it's really tough. A lot of mornings. I wouldn't say that I do it every. I try to do it every day, but I don't because there's all the days that you snooze too long but that's the that's the goal is to try and really focus thinking time in the mornings and then that gives me the evenings to have more free time to to think or play with the kids or whatever it is so um yeah, that's that's where I'm trying to set boundaries at the moment. I say trying because I'm perhaps <laughs> life is random for me. I'm sure. Uh, um, so what time do you have to go to bed to get up? At well, four? ideally I'd go to bed at like nine nine thirty, but then the, the problem is that it doesn't really happen, and yeah, so that's that's when it's hard. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's really got to be the the boundaries, the kind of bed bed early, up early, and. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been trying that routine particularly this year, but for the past couple of years on and off. And I think that's the way that things will work better for me in that routine. That's awesome. Yeah. Exciting. So tell me what's, what are you excited about that's coming up for Navalytics? Uh, Obviously there's a fast growth, but is there anything particularly you want to shout out or you want to? Mention? Yeah, I mean, this state of Australian state of Australian neighbourhoods project that we're creating this open index standard um, is it's really a world first, and we're so excited about that. It's it's like um, you know, in some ways, it's like we've there's an X ray that we've created for neighbourhoods, um, but at the moment, we're not sure whether we're looking at a hairline fracture or a full break. And there's that kind of calibration process of working with industry, of working with research, of working with a whole different range of data sets and really smart mathematicians to work out how we quantify and codify what neighbourhoods mean. And uh, I'm really energised by the opportunity of doing something that's um, new like that, but but more so the opportunity that we once we have that, that we will be able to do really great comparative analytics of understanding how well neighbourhoods are thriving and the opportunity that that has to help steer some of the big decisions that we're going to have to make in the next generation about where we live and how we live. Mm. Like if you think about urban growth, you know, 50% of the world lives in cities, 70 or 80%, depending on the figures you look at, will by 2050. That means we need to build as much city as exists today in the next 30 years. Mm. It's just huge um, from an infrastructure perspective, or we need to be a lot smarter about how we're using places. And if we don't start to put people and human life and behaviour um, connection in the centre of that, then, you know, we've got some pretty big problems. I love yeah. it. We need to be deliberate about making that the centre rather than waiting for it to happen. Because yeah. if we don't plan for it, it's not going to happen, That's right? That's right. Yeah. That's Gro- awesome. Open growth is happening too fast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So check out neighbourlytics.com. Uh, I'm really active on LinkedIn. Listen to Hartley. You can find me there. Um, I love this podcast and I love listening to stories uh, about different people's journeys. So we'd love to hear yours as well. It's so good. Well, so it's been so great having you. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player. Why not share the podcast with a friend? You could also leave us a five-star review in your podcast player. You may also want to join us for one of our regular live podcasts or to become a show sponsor. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.au and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook.